Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, a look back at some of the show's highlights this week. Also today, we'll be finding out about a project to understand the genetics of the Manx cat. And we're joined by Rachel Glover, or the crazy cat scientist, as she's known to family and friends. I bet you wish you hadn't told me that now, don't you, Rachel? <laughs> I am. <laughs> um, just tell us why it's so important that we understand all this about Manx cats at all. Well, we know a little bit about why the Manx cat has lost its tail. Some research in the States has, has pointed, pointed us in the direction of at least one gene. But um, there's a lot of problems that Manx cats can get, and it's mostly to do with their spines being overly short um, in some cats. And we don't know why that is, and, and we want to try and figure out the genetics so we can help the um, cats in the future be more healthy and make the breed more healthy overall. It is 18 minutes to three, and now what we want is to encourage as many people as possible to go along to the University College Isle of Man this Wednesday and Thursday to find potential stem cell donors. Now, our guest is Chris Kelly, who wants as many people as possible to come forward because uh, he's looking for a match for his brother Matthew, who's currently receiving chemo for two different types of leukaemia. Just tell us, Chris, what finding a match would mean for Matthew. Um, I mean, potentially it'd save his life. Um, Without a match, he's going to have to be on chemo, um, as I understand it. And, uh, you know, a match would mean that, that, that they could get rid of the leukaemia altogether. And that would that would save his life. Talk us through what people who come forward, hopefully uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, will have to go through then. Okay, so um, if you come forward on Wednesday or Thursday, uh, you would have to fill out a form. So we've got your details and uh, spit in a cup, and uh, that cup is sent off to a science team somewhere in London, um, and they will analyse it for DNA and and see what uh, they can work out if you're a bone marrow match from that. Basically, um, if you'd be on the register till you're sixty. Um, on the Anthony Nolan one, um, and you could be contacted at any time. You could you could donate um, two or three times potentially, because um, it's not like organ donors where you can only do it when you've died. You you just donate whenever you're able to. Um, and then so what happened then is if you're found to be a match with somebody that needs uh, stem cells, then they would contact you. You'd have to have a blood test with your doctor. Uh, just to double check and make sure that you're you're not ill in any way um and normally they're fine obviously you you tend to know if you're ill already um uh, just to make sure that you're fine and then you go off to to london um they pay for you to get down to london so you don't have to get there yourself because that will be horrific um but you go down to london uh you get given some medication which uh boosts your stem cell production they produce stem cells all the time anyway um basically whenever you get an ache or a pain usually that's where stem cells are being produced to fight that problem whatever the problem is um so you're just producing more stem cells i i always like to tell people that it gives you some sort of superpower i don't know if you get to choose which one but um i'm going with flight or x-ray vision or something like that um i assume that's how it works um and then uh, and then they'll take the stem cells out of your blood uh through a machine um basically they take your blood out uh, they use some sort of magnetizing process as i understand it to take the stem cells out um, and then pump the blood back into you so that's basically the process for the for 90 percent of people that donate because, I mean, ideally, as many people as possible would be on the register. And I, I just wonder how much of people's reluctance is about that fear of the unknown and, and going through a medical procedure that yeah. they don't necessarily understand. Yeah, and as I understand it, it used to be a, a great big needle in your hip and it was mm-hmm. very painful and horrible. Um, but now we're using stem cells rather than direct bone marrow. Um, the stem cells can be used to grow new bone marrow and things like that. So um, we can do it that way and it's a lot 
a lot less invasive, a lot more pleasant. Um, we've been talking to Rachel Glover um, about the Manx Genome Project uh, a little earlier. Now, you are a scientist, Rachel. Yeah. How far has this sort of science come, would you say? I would say over the last 10 years, things have progressed extremely rapidly um, with DNA technology in particular. So the human genome was sequenced in 2003 and in 2008, uh, new sequencing technologies came about that massively dropped the price and massively opened up that kind of technology to lots and lots of other scientists and lots of other fields. So it means that things like uh, cancer research, um, animal um, diseases, agricultural technology everything has advanced extremely rapidly on the back of that um, and I was talking to Chris earlier on it that actually there's a project in the UK called um, Genomics England which is being run in the NHS where they're sequencing the genomes of uh, rare cancers um, and also of the patients to try and look at the differences as to why that cancer has occurred on the genetic level and also they're looking at um, patients who have rare genetic disorders so it, there's a lot of research going on and most of that has only become possible in the last couple of years girls 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 if you're 16 or over now is your chance to enter the carnival queen competition to be held on the afternoon of this sunday august the 13th in the villa marina gardens the winner gets 40 pounds and the douglas corporation rose bowl and replica and the second prize is 20 pounds and the third prize 10 pounds get your entry form today from the tourist board office in victoria street or at the villa marina this is your chance to be the douglas carnival queen for 1978 fabulous hey. absolutely i mean and they videoed that because that was like this is your life moment i do feel a little bit like michael aspel right now um <laughs> love the fact you were at school phoning into old mike reynolds there I know. saying nice things i did makes a change. No. I, okay i literally when i was at school I, I, I turned on the radio one day and there was manx radio and i just uh, moved here at 13 there was no uk commercial radio in fact there's no even bbc local I and i just realized luckily thank goodness I, that's what i wanted to do up to then i was being trolled around to go to banks or be an advocate, you know. But I went, no, that's it. And I was just like, since I walked in here, that was it. I didn't want to work anywhere else. I just wanted to stay on the man and Manx Radio. And I was there for a long time, <laughs> probably too long. And we were talking about um, technology earlier and uh, you being an early adopter. Uh, you bought a video camera in here, what was it, 1982? Yeah. And um, seeing some of the footage of that is just absolutely hilarious. And it really was, people really wanted to see at that point behind the scenes of the radio because it was a massive part of people's lives. Manx Radio, really, yeah, it, it was the only broadcaster. We were very much in the community in that sense of and people came up here, we went out there. We were, I mean, I used to go to North Wales to uh, discos, disco techs even, they flew me over. It was because even over there they had even less radio than we did. But uh, it was an awesome time, honestly, to be in radio because you, it was skinny your pants stuff. And, and reel to reel for the interviews. None of those pushing buttons. Nothing worked half the time. I, I'd spill a cup of tea over the decks, or a record would go out at 33 when it's actually been at 45, and someone has to walk in and crank the thing up to the right speed. I mean, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but it it was. Um, you had to get all your records out, all the commercials out. You never stopped. It's it's different, isn't it? Now it's more button pushing it is but no less difficult i'd just like to say um but what, what about four years ago uh moved to mttv um and talking about technology you take your your camera out which i think it used to be this great big Huge. thing but now you just do it on your iphone sometimes it's, it's a camera looks like a still camera it's a 4k although i don't use that mode particularly but it, i mean technology i have a backpack which i can just turn up with and when we were doing the stuff here for the elections that's what i was using three cameras tiny little things but with a computer on the move and the 4G has made a massive difference because I can 
upload from anywhere. Um, people then used to seeing you out and about. I have to say there has been some criticism on Twitter yeah, um, yes, of the way has. you look. No, it's true. Um, Somebody said you look like a tramp, Paul. Let, let's, if you've got time, I would appreciate it because I've, I do everything. So I, I've got a three-camera thing. And I, I'm, I'll be doing the chief minister. But three cameras, is the microphones up? Is it in focus? So the last thing I think about is my hair. And it's normally the hair is all staying on end. Uh, the tie may not be done up. And when I was working in what I call real TV land, you know, Granada, Border, BBC, whatever, most of the presenters spent all their time thinking about their presentation and not maybe enough about the story. But then you know, there's more people to do things. I honestly, if you see me from the waist downwards, I'm always in jeans as well, which uh, hopefully most people don't see. But this person saw me running towards a sea terminal in joggers. I don't know what I was doing. Maybe jogging? <laughs> no, I was with the microphone, so it, it, was, over, it was after somebody. But, uh, you know, hey, it's ha- only me. I don't care. I have to say, you do look very smart today, so I like to think you have dressed up for yeah. us. Of course. Um, in terms of thinking about MTTV, the sort of um, stories you cover, what is it that people want from that sort of thing on the internet nowadays? It's always a story that I think no one's going to bother about because we have a most popular page, so I, I'm always fascinated. The one I do is a throwaway thinking, oh, well, that's just, just an item, but it's not going to be of interest. They're the ones that people seem to go for. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason. It could be a political story. Overall, the, I mean, I think the election stuff didn't grab people, which is interesting. Overall, you'd just hope there'd be that connection. People would really, really want to engage. I mean, they were there, but they weren't. it wasn't box office numbers. But a, an item about uh, a lady got her BEM award the other day up. We've done lots of those. And those haven't done anything. But this woman is incredibly popular. That's what I can think. And everyone wanted to watch it. It's interesting. You're listening to him today on Manx Radio, just coming up to quarter past two. And we're going to talk now about one of those subjects, which is really very rarely highlighted, usually because people are too embarrassed to talk about it. Tearing during childbirth can cause significant issues for women. But because it's typically something people are reluctant to talk about, it's not known how many women are suffering in silence with the problems that arise from such injuries. Now, this has been featured recently on the BBC programme Victoria Derbyshire, and we're going to hear now from a woman who suffered significant tearing when she gave birth to her son six years ago. I should say at this point that this uh, interview does feature some graphic descriptions which may be uncomfortable for some listeners. Six years since Debbie gave birth to her son, Caden, and she's lost count of how many hospital appointments she's had. There's a small area between your back passage and your vagina, um, and, that, and that was quite badly torn like, all the way through. Um, so yeah, I went for emergency surgery to try and repair that, but when we got to emergency surgery it seemed that it's actually cut into my bowel. Surgeons tried to repair the tear, but Debbie was left incontinent and had to be fitted with a colostomy bag. Everything changes, you know, I have to consider it wherever I go. You know, if I leave the house I need to be, I take spare clothes, I have to scan the place for the nearest toilet. But for example, I was at shopping in Asda, standing in the queue, um, and I just went, and the bag came apart from the sides and I could feel it leaking. The number of women who suffered a serious tear tripled over the last decade, from 2% to 6%. Not all will develop complications, but possible symptoms including continence and pain during sex. These injuries affect more women than we know because many suffer in silence. Either they're too embarrassed to seek help, or they're unsure whether their symptoms are a normal consequence of giving birth. What's an apex? The beginning of the tear. Diagnosing these injuries quickly and repairing them properly is crucial. It can make the difference between developing a complication or making a full recovery. How do you think training is at the moment for midwives? 
it's quite patchy so it's not standardized if 10 women are going to have a baby and eight of them or nine of them are likely to have a trauma then we need to have mandatory training across board turn around this, this leg the other leg turn around is it made being a mum harder definitely the stoma bag takes up a lot of my time and he's well aware of that as well if he needed my attention i was in the toilet or the shower or um, and he's he has lashed out and hit out Doctors and midwives are now working together to try and prevent these injuries. They've developed a number of techniques which appear to reduce the most serious tears. As the baby's head comes out, the other hand is used to prevent the head from coming out with great force. These will be piloted in 16 hospitals from January. But for now, the aim is to raise awareness of these injuries so women know what to expect and when to seek help. Women need to understand that there can be consequences after vagina delivery, that help is available. Um, they need to be less embarrassed to talk about this. And as healthcare professionals, we need to be less embarrassed about these symptoms as well. That was the report on tearing during childbirth that was featured on the BBC programme, Victoria Derbyshire. Um, Dr John, I mean, I, I keep saying that this is a, a subject that people are generally too embarrassed to talk about. And your experience... How many women would you say are just putting up with issues that arise from this sort of thing? Well, the problem, of course, is that we don't know because they don't come and talk to us about it. So, um, But I, I suspect it's quite a lot. I suspect it's quite a lot. And, and this programme suggests that, I must say. Of course, it's going to be difficult to come and talk to a doctor about it. It's a very personal thing. And I, I'm always talking about embarrassing things on, on, on the air here, aren't I? And, and, you know, the reality is that we all, as doctors, know it's embarrassing for you to come and talk to us about. So we're going to be sensitive. Don't come in worried that we're going to laugh at you or feel embarrassed ourselves. We're not. You know, we do understand that these things are difficult to talk about. We also know because we've had the experience of, of, of dealing with the odd case, that they can be completely life-changing, particularly the nasty cases like the one we've just heard about. It is potentially a very serious condition. The problem, of course, is that for most women who get a tear, it's not that serious, but it's still significantly damaging to their health, to their comfort, to their sex life, often to their bladder function, their bowel function, even if the tear is relatively small. Any pain you get down there is likely to make you feel uncomfortable about your bodily functions. And, you know, for that reason, it can be quite debilitating. So do come and talk to us. You know, um, go and speak to a lady doctor, go and speak to the nurse if you'd prefer to initially, but make contact um, because there are things that can be done about it and we will try and help. The thing I think I was surprised about, I mean, I've obviously had three children and you had the, the six-week post pregnancy checkup when you go along with your baby. It's not necessarily something that is brought up at that point. Why is that? It should be. We almost always will try to ask whether you've had stitches, whether you've had any tears, and if so, whether they're all healed up. Of course, a lot of women will just say, oh, yes, yes, it's all fine. And that's the problem. Every doctor should be asking that question. The reality is that we will tend to be more aware if you have had, and it's been documented that you've had a traumatic delivery, or if you've had lots of stitches or whatever. Nowadays, of course, 
so many women will have what's called an episiotomy, the little cut that you, you, you make to prevent tears, and that's the reason that it's done, ladies. So don't, you know, a lot of people are very worried about having that cut, but it's actually done specifically to prevent the traumatic tear, which can be so much more damaging. Um, but if you've had that done, we will tend to ask about it specifically. If you haven't, and you're not going to talk about it, we won't necessarily make a big deal of it unless you are going to, you know. So if you've got a problem, do talk about it. It's much better to talk about it at six weeks when something can be done than it is to wait three to six months when scar tissue has set in and possibly psychological issues have set in as a result. A lot of women who get tears won't talk about it, won't mention it to their husbands, but simply won't engage in intercourse. And that's really hard for your relationship. So, you know, don't let those problems set in because if they do, it's much, much harder then to try and get uh, get it better. Can I ask, is this something, because as you know, I'm, I'm not a mum myself, but these things that, that keep sort of coming up on the programme about pregnancy, about childbirth, about labour, are these things actually discussed with women in advance of them going through? I mean, did you know about this, Beth, about how how bad it can be? No. I mean, you can, you read all the books, don't you? I think especially with your first pregnancy. And, and to be honest, I kind of glossed over that because once you're pregnant, there's not a lot you can do about it. Um, so in some ways I think I went down the road of sort of I don't really want to think about it so yeah I wonder whether or not I just wasn't prepared and there's a, there's a sort of denial as well because a lot of women will um, are so engaged in the process of getting bigger all the changes that happen to you that moment of childbirth which of course everybody particularly if you've not had a baby before is going to be nervous about is something that you'll tend to just put to one side until the very last moment and so that's why antenatal classes that's why having a good midwife Asking the right questions is so important because the better prepared you are, the less likely you are to have a surprise or a shock uh, when you've actually gone through that uh, labour and delivery process. Is there any indication as to why um, things like tear and childbirth is getting worse now than it seemed to have been before? I think you've got to be careful about saying worse. I think it's becoming more frequent and I think there are several reasons for that. One is that we're much better at detecting it and so I think we're picking up a lot more cases than we used to. I think a lot of women simply just didn't talk and so the medical profession uh, didn't wasn't even aware that they were happening. Nowadays I think it is getting um, more publicised so we're picking them up. Secondly I think babies are getting bigger. You know, we are generally have better nutrition uh, and so we, we are just delivering bigger babies. And so, of course, from a physical point of view, that means that it can be more traumatic. And thirdly, women are having babies later on in life. And of course, the later you are, the less flexible your tissues are. And so the more likely you are to tear. Is there anything you can do to specifically help yourself ahead of the labour process to try and prevent this sort of thing happening? There isn't anything that you can do to make yourself more flexible or anything like that. What you can do is what we've talked about already and that is be aware. Be aware of the possibility. Um, talk to your midwife about it. Talk to the, the doctors at the hospital in the antenatal clinic if you have a chance to do. Read the books. Um, look at what the possibilities are. Be prepared really and then ask questions. You know, Ask questions after the delivery. Have you had to put stitches in? If you didn't you know a lot of women aren't even particularly comfortable in examining themselves particularly well so and particularly after a trauma like that and, and that's understandable do ask questions it's your body you need to know as much about it as possible so that you can uh, you know get back to normal as quickly as possible so if any women are listening and they're putting up with any sort of discomfort they've got any issues you know relating to bladder sex whatever come and, and they yeah. come and see their gp Absolutely. what is the likely course of action that they would go through then well um, i mean initially obviously we'll do an assessment um most of the time, it's a question just of monitoring the situation. If it's a, a very minor tear, which most tears are, let's put it in perspective, I have only seen, I 
was saying to, to you earlier, Christy, I've only seen uh, in 26 years, I've only seen one of the sort of tears that we were hearing about on that BBC programme um, in, in my practice. So they are not common. Uh, and of course, they're horribly traumatic when they are, but they are pretty rare. Most of the time, it'll be a small tear. And monitoring it carefully, making sure we don't get infection, making sure they're healing well uh, without too much scarring, using antibiotics very quickly if there is a sign of infection are all really important. Most of the time, that's all that's needed. And most of the time, apart from an initial consultation with the doctor, that can be handled by your midwife. Now, Angela Drower was born Angela Cunningham in Douglas in 1926, the youngest granddaughter of the proprietor of the UK's first holiday camp, Joseph Cunningham. Well, Angela grew up to become an incredible watercolourist. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with her work, some of which is going to be on display at a private exhibition this weekend in London. And to find out more, we're joined on the line now live by Angela's daughter, Jill. Jill, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Tell us what you know about your mum's early years here in the Isle of Man. Well, it uh, it must have been quite a strange life because she lived... Um, in Eastcliff, which is a building opposite the Cunningham Holiday Camp. So part of her time was uh, spent in the the environment of camaraderie and big bands. She learned to play piano accordion with the Horbury brothers, who were performers there. And so she was a bit spoiled, I think, Uh, got lots of attention. She was the youngest daughter of Harley. And um, so that was part of her life, very sociable. And the other part was quiet. She, her father, Harley, had the um, Ellerslie Farm, which produced the food for the holiday camp. So um, she spent quite a lot of time there in a sort of bucolic, uh, ideal setting. She loved walking. She loved the countryside. So she had that quiet element as well. So quite a mix. So how did she get into painting, Jill? Well, I think it's two things. Um, First of all, her parents, Harley and Francis, were collectors of paintings, and they particularly liked the work of William Hoggart, and I think they were patrons of his because they bought an awful lot of his paintings. Some of his paintings were quite strange. I remember one where the shadows in the morning went one way in the painting and and in the afternoon went another way. But anyway, he was a wonderful painter and they they saw this and they bought a lot of his paintings. And they were family friends with the Hoggarts. And so um, I know that Mum went to see the Hoggarts and I know that she watched him at work. And I think this was inspirational to her. And this combined with the fact that uh, she lived, spent quite a lot of time at Ellerslie and in the countryside. If you're a budding pa- painter, you really do feel inspired by the Manx countryside. And I think that did it for her. Well, she went to, to study at art school in London. There she met uh, Dennis Drower. They came back to the island in the mid-1980s uh, when they retired. And that, Jill, was when she was able to return to what she loved doing, which was painting the Manx countryside. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of women of her generation, obviously, they put their family first and that was uh, the time. And um, she didn't give much time to painting while she was over here. She did a bit. I remember some of it. But when she was retired, she had lots of free time and she she just took off and she just loved painting her favourite places in the island. It's, It's a bit poignant, really, how things change. 
and how paintings and old photographs really are important to keep an idea of history alive. This exhibition then, it's a private viewing in London. Why why did you decide to do that? Well, because Mum has had strong connections with Putney. She spent three decades there. And um, I just thought, because she had been to studios there, uh, uh, it would be good to try and get an exhibition in London, um, in Putney, in fact. And I went to the um, principal of Putney Art College with a bit of trepidation, because uh, Putney Art School has a great variety of art it's interested in. Um, A lot of it's cutting edge, a lot of it's abstract. The printing is very cutting edge. And um, I thought, well, you know, maybe they won't like landscapes and cottages. It may not be their sort of thing. And the principal sort of looked at them and he remained silent for a bit. And then he said, they're wonderful. Yes, we want them. So um, I was sort of felt vindicated and, and I was really pleased because she did have this strong link with Putney, although her heart never really left the Isle of Man, I don't think. Well, just finally, Jill, will this exhibition be coming over here at all? Oh, yes. We're sort of at the planning stage, but it's definitely coming over. And there will be lots for everybody. I mean, there'll be print. There's a limited edition print. Uh, there are greetings cards or just, you know, come along and look at it when it does arrive. Come along and look at it and say, hmm, that cottage, I know it. Where is it? And just enjoy the exhibition for itself. Now, can you imagine what it's like to live in some of the poorest areas of the world, bringing up children in extreme poverty and literally struggling to exist day to day? Well, we're going to be finding out now about a charity which is hoping to combat that. And joining us on the phone is Freya Marshall, who's the director of Child in Need India, or CINI for short. Uh, Freya, good afternoon. Just tell me what the aim of this charity is all about, first of all. Oh, hi. Um, CINI is all about... um raising poor communities out of poverty, out of difficult situations, but with a real focus on women and children. Um, we work specifically in Calcutta and the eastern states of India, um, and they're areas which are affected by negative attitudes towards women and perhaps, you know, an attitude towards children that isn't always positive. You know, it's very common to see street children. It's very common to see children working in child labour, and people have become very desensitised to that. So it, we believe by investing in women and children and finding ways to improve their lives, it's not only in that immediate moment making their lives better. You know, women are getting jobs, women are having more money, women are improving their own lives in that moment. They can then give back to their community as a whole, um, and that raises that community as a whole to you know, together to make sure that they're, they're not facing this, the same trials that they might normally be. So that's, that's in a very small nutshell, um, you know, the aim of CINE. And in terms of, of how long CINE's been going, because it's been quite a few years yeah. now, um, what are the sort of the success stories? I mean, what's the, the impact been? It's a funny one, actually, because with CINE and I think with um, development organisations in general, it's moving towards a very big picture view on how to deal with these issues and dealing with something like attitudes towards women and children in the community. It's a slow burn. Um, So there are obviously lots and lots of individual success stories. Um, 
for example, we focus quite a lot on doing nutritional work and nutritional support in the community. There are currently more malnourished children in India than there are in sub-Saharan Africa, um, despite India's development. Um, and actually, you know, the services are there to support people, and India's government are doing a good job of trying to make changes, but individuals don't always have the ability to access those services. They may not have transport, they may be disabled, they may not be educated enough to understand that those 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 support mechanisms are there for them. So um we've had um we've been running for 42 years and you know we've had really great successes with support supporting communities to, to access nutritional um feeding program government feeding programs and also working with mothers and babies, which is something that we're really passionate about, um, teaching women how to, firstly, how to breastfeed. I mean, it's obvious that if anyone's a mother, they know it's not as easy as it sounds. And those women in India need support just as much as women in India, um, in England do and in the UK do. Um, and so we've had great success with that, kind of working with breastfeeding mothers, making sure that they are feeding their babies properly, that they're not falling foul to some of the fashions of different fashions of formula feeding. Um, it's a big, I mean, I know it's a big um, problem in discussion, I should say, in England and in the UK, because but they're in a different situation. If you if you formula feed a baby in India and you don't have access to safe water, then you're putting that baby at risk. So it's a different conversation. But um, so we've had great success with that kind of increasing breastfeeding um, levels, making sure that women are weaning their babies on the correct food and properly, making sure that women and babies are not malnourished. And if they get that that start in life, um, that just change their future it can it can really make a massive difference uh, joined by the lola boys uh, this <laughs> afternoon who are over to um do a bit of a gig for the manx breast cancer support group they've got their ball uh, their third annual ball uh, happening this weekend um take us back then to where your dramaticness if that's a word <laughs> yeah. um started because paul you, you've done an awful lot you've you performed in your own production of The King and I in your family's house in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was that. I kind of started in that way, you know, like being a very, very masculine young boy. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to play Anna and uh, everyone else had to play the little children. I was every good part. So we did the sound of music. Of course, I was Maria and I was Liesl. I was the mother of Bess. I was, I was all of the good parts, really. And everyone else had to play the bit parts, my poor sister and my cousins. Uh, and then from there... I uh, I grew up a little and uh, I went to drama school and uh, ended up in the West End, so which is how I met Andrew. And what sort of life is it like in the West End? Because it must just be relentless when you're doing performances, what, sometimes twice a day, sometimes more? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, it is relentless. People think it's great fun, but it is great fun, but you're younger then and you're doing eight shows a week. So you get one day off and on that one day off, really, you just uh, collapse in whichever latest toilet you find yourself and uh, and, then, <laughs> and then you manage to get up and you work the next day. I don't know how we do it now. We do. We think we're really busy if we do three shows in a week now. Uh, we, can, we can just about cope with that. So doing eight shows a week, now we're 40-something. <clears throat> uh, 
Andrew, yes, hello. you have been a cover star in some teen magazines, haven't you? <laughs> Where did you get all this? Oh, my God, you've been delving deep. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, how did that come about? I don't know. I had this dodgy agent at the time, and I need my equity card. And, you know, it just, um, yeah, you have to do these things, you know, to make ends meet. Um, I think it was Oh Boy. Uh, oh Boy the magazine. I don't know, th- these magazines aren't going anymore, are they? These like picture story sort of magazines for girls? I don't think I they don't are. Think so. Well, I, I suppose we're not their target audience. No, they, it was a big thing in the 80s, really. I um, did I did look up Oh Boy when I, I read that. And the one image that came up, I'm wondering if it might have been yours. Actually. I, I'm going to have to show you later. <laughs> I think it might be online. I'm doing a really cheesy look into the... Yeah, we yeah, have yeah. to for those, well, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look lovely. That's why I fell for you after I saw that picture. Really? <laughs> mm. um, and actually, you have played the lead role of Danny Zuko many times. Yes. Bit yes. of an icon for you. Oh, yeah. Greece was fantastic. And it, um, that production... I mean, I, I, I was sort of more understudy, actually. I wasn't the... Uh, it was uh, the original production, not the in the 60s, because that was the complete original. <laughs> Robert Stigward did the... Um, uh, in 1993, did all the songs that they couldn't do before, all the songs from the film, because a lot of songs from the actual film um, weren't in the show, the original show, and he didn't release the songs until the 99th production with Craig McLaughlin and Debbie Gibson and Shane Ritchie yeah, Tamsin Althwaite was in it mm. and I was a teenager I had to sing Beauty School Dropout that's one of the best songs oh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I was very lucky yeah so I did that for two years and understudied Craig and then when Shane took it over as well I understudied and went on for both of them it's a bit weird because Sonia then took over for, and Sonia only came up to my hip <laughs> You know, Paddy and Sonia, yeah. um, and she yeah. did it in broad scouts as well, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, oh, she I did love it. <laughs> um, Andrew, you've also been Brad in Rocky Horror alongside yeah. a very young Robbie Williams's Rocky. Oh, yo, he did one show. Yeah, we did a charity night. Um, yeah, in the West End one night, and uh, yeah, and he turned up. It, it was just after he'd, he'd left Take That, and he was a bit, he was a bit off it, if I'm honest. He was a bit kind of. Uh, <laughs> did you tell him that? <laughs> no. <laughs> We'd had a, we had another boy band guy in the show who was playing Rocky and he was desperate to go on. So he, in this one particular scene in the show, they, he, uh, we, it was a surprise to us all. He just appeared. And uh, yeah, so I have appeared with Robbie Williams on stage. Yeah, but it was a very brief, brief experience. We have been joined by the Lola boys this afternoon. Thank you so, so much for being here. And uh, we've nearly made it to the end of the show without being taken off air, which is quite good. Uh, coming up on Sunday on the Sunday soundtrack, Christy. Uh, I'll be talking about Bob Dylan. Uh, we mentioned him briefly on the show yesterday. He, of course, has just been awarded the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature, which is unusual for a songwriter. Yeah, uh, but we but were glad is... it wasn't for his voice. Can I just ask you two, do you think his voice is a bit... Uh, yeah. Bob? Yeah. yeah. It's not well, great. I don't think that would win maybe the uh, no. Prize for Literature. But his writing, though. Yes, yeah. yeah. His lyrics Excellent are lovely, lyrics. aren't they? So we'll be playing some, uh, some Bob Dylan songs, maybe sung by other people. Mm. Yeah. Um, can I also, at this point, just say a very quick uh, break a leg to my mother-in-law, who is in Blythe Spirit, which is happening at the Aeronaut centre this evening it's been put on by the legion players um let's have a lola boys song then to play oh. us out um, and set us up for the weekend uh, paul what we're going to hear well we're going to hear uh, this is sometimes the beginning of our show it's a, a, an old song but we've done something different to it it's called uh, we're going to live till we die once upon a time there were two little boys who worked in the west end they were assigned big parts but i took them away from all that And now they work for me. My name is Lola.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, the Lola Boys. We're gonna live till we die. We're gonna laugh instead of cry. We're gonna take the town and turn it upside down. We're gonna live, live, live until we die. They're gonna say, who's that guy? Oh. We're gonna play to the sky. We're gonna do our thing. We're gonna have our fling. We're gonna live, live, live until we die. The blues are lay low. We'll make them stay low. They'll never trail over our heads. We'll be devils until we're angels. But until then, hallelujah, gonna dance. Gonna fly, take a chance, riding high. Before our numbers up, we're gonna fill our cup. We're gonna live, 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 live till we go. The blues will lay low. We'll make 'em stay low. They'll never trail all over our heads. Oh, well we'll be double. Until we're angels, but until then, Hallelujah, gonna dance. Gonna Thank you so much for downloading the Women Today podcast. As ever, if there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show or something you think we should be talking about, then we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via email. It's womentoday at manxradio.com, or you can go to the Women Today Facebook page, like and follow the page while you're there, or we're also on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday. Until next time, goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.